This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. You are the ones who make this program possible. Tonight's special guest is Anthony Sanchez, who returns to discuss more of the Dulce underground facility, the origins of the human race, and Project Leonid. We are told to keep our eyes on the Middle East, but what if the real threat for global domination and conflict was actually coming from China. Anthony Sanchez will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our interviews, three years worth of programs, become a Veritas member. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. In just seconds, you'll receive your login and you'll be able to take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And with the upcoming holidays, why not give the gift of truth? You can choose between three months all the way to a two-year subscription. How about our futuristic metal case 8GB USB drive, which by the way is still sold out, but we have a, an order underway. Season 3 is coming very soon. Go to the Veritas store for more information. You can also purchase MMS directly from us. We have a trusted source, and with the winter upon us, it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And it's also very inexpensive. And don't forget, 
the deadline to send your question for the upcoming Insight Veritas 2011 edition is Sunday, December the 18th. You can record and send the audio of your question, and I will play it on the air, or you can simply send it in writing. Go to the member section for instructions. It's going to be a lot of fun. So far, the questions I'm receiving will push me to do some mental aerobics. I hope you can participate. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website. And please don't contact me on Facebook. I get too much spam there and hardly check my messages. Also, don't send technical support questions on Facebook either. The support email is right on our website, veritasradio.com. We think of Area 51 as the most secret facility in the United States. But is Dulce the biggest and most secretive underground facility in the US? Area 51 never existed until Russian satellite images of Groom Lake surfaced. It is now public knowledge that Area 51 is a vibrant military research, development and testing complex conducted by many defense contractors which work on a variety of highly compartmentalized projects. Will the US government ever confirm the existence of the Dulce underground facility? In addition, and according to one of Anthony Sanchez's sources, who uses the codename Trinity, he issues the following warning. The Chinese military, under the control of the New World Order, have completed construction in the Chengdu district of what is the mother of all underground bases a location which possesses a maglev rail system that leads all the way to its southern coastal waters. Unlike the Dulce underground facility, which is scientific and primarily used for horrific experimentation on people, including new weapons research and development, the Chengdu underground complex is used for one purpose, strategic military staging and preparation. Our best intelligence on Chengdu is very limited but we know that the underground military facility and the New World Order controlled Chinese government require our immediate attention. It is the New World Order in China who has systematically fed the geopolitical and economic flame toward an ultimate invasion against the rest of the world. What must be understood is that invasion will not be from the interests in the Middle East like you are being led to believe. The Chinese are developing stealth capabilities at a devastatingly fast rate, including advanced systems using alien technology. If we do not pay attention, they will own our military in the same way they already own our economy. Under the United States Air Force and Department of Defense, a dangerous project called Leonid is underway to combat the Chinese efforts. When you know more, you will begin to understand why programs such as Leonid and places like the Dulce facility are critical to our government. But at what risk to us? We have many friends abroad, including many in China, who we must help and ultimately save. People who have risked their lives to defect and share critical data on New World Order activities now being conducted both in China and here within our own government. For this and much more, Anthony Sanchez is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. La, la, la. 
This is Norio Hayakawa, and you are listening to the Veritas Show. Anthony F. Sanchez received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Computer Information Systems from Western Governors University in Salt Lake City, Utah, in 2008. In addition to being a software consultant for the state of California through his own company, Anthony has been employed for 16 years as a software engineer working for 3Com, Intel, Acer, Netscape Communications, and Hewlett-Packard, performing high-level software development, supporting scientific engineering and business intelligence projects. He became interested in UFOs back in 1989, at the time Area 51 surfaced as a public phenomenon. Since 2000, he has researched the subject matter thoroughly, employing various scientific methods and hands-on approaches, thus compiling over 20 years worth of UFO-related research data. He is the author of UFO Highway. Anthony's websites are ufohighway.com and a new one, projectleonid.com. We'll also be discussing what Project Leonid is all about. And directly from Northern California, I would like to welcome Anthony Sanchez back to Veritas. Hello, Anthony, and welcome back. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you for having me, Mel. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And it's been over a year since I had you on the show, but I've been lucky to have been in contact with you all along. A lot has happened. And I would like you to, to give us a summary of all the things you've gone through and all the new research you've encountered, because our listeners may not know. Yeah, I would, I would begin by telling people that this time last year, you know, I was going through some personal turmoil in my life, and uh, I was going through quite a bit, actually. And uh, I almost abandoned my research at that point because of a loss that I had, you know, succumbed to. But thankfully, with the help of my friends within the, um, within the field, um, I overcame, you know, many of the hardships, and I was able to continue on with my work and to continue working with uh, Norio Hayakawa on this uh, whole matter of Dulce, uh, the, the underground facility at Dulce. Um, since that time, I've undercome uh, much scrutiny from many people, uh, but I managed to circumvent that and, and not let it, you know, bother me so that I could continue to develop and work on the work at hand as opposed to, you know, you know, being a constant battle with naysayers. So, you know, one of the things that I have to constantly remind myself is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And in this case, in this case, I have concrete information that I wholeheartedly believe in, which has led me uh, just recently to probably the biggest discovery ever in the whole folklore surrounding the uh, Dulce itself, the Dulce facility. So, that's where I've been, you know, for the past year. And uh, I've also been conducting research beyond the Dulce periphery uh, into the whole geopolitical spectrum and the economic upheaval and how it relates to uh, information uh, with respect to the Chinese. And I know we're going to be discussing that, but I have so much information to share. And I want to be, I want, I want everyone to know how thankful and how grateful I am to, to you, Mel, for having me uh, on this platform, which is uh, just an amazing uh, platform. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, before we start, let me just say that we think of Area 51 as the most secret facility in the United States, but there's the Dulce facility, which is the biggest and most secretive underground facility in the U.S. But before we start, a lot, as I said, has happened. Even even your health 
has been compromised lately. You were in New Mexico and, and uh, you know, short of an adventure, it almost cost your life recently. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. Um, on Monday the 17th uh, of October, I was called by um, uh, Jesse Ventura's people to me on a television show to, I guess, to be, to serve as a consultant or, and I don't know if I was going to be on the show, if I was just going to help as a consultant on Dulce or what, but they asked if I was going to be in there on the 21st. And unfortunately my planned trip to New Mexico was not slated to begin until the 24th, which was the, the Monday, the following Monday. Um, so what I was doing, there was two things that I was doing in, um, in New Mexico. One, I was a keynote speaker at the uh, ASPE uh, symposium, which is a paranormal symposium thrown by uh, Janet Saylor. Mm -hmm. That was the primary reason why I was going. But this this presented me with an opportunity to meet with several of the host families in the Hickory Apache Nation who I have become closely related to. I'm good, close, personal friends with many of the families in Dulce. When I arrived on the 24th, I was, uh, it was uh, two, two, 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, I checked into the Best Western Hickoria uh, there at the Wild Horse Casino in Dulce. By 8 o'clock, I was meeting with uh, my contact. Um, I'm not sure if I want to name her at this point. Uh, she's in the book. I do mention her in the book, and I, but I just don't want to bring further attention to them outside of the book at this point. They've received a lot of harassment and stuff lately. So she is the head of the tribal council security. She has been promoted. She used to be a 13 year police uh, officer veteran of the Hickory tribe, but now she's been promoted. She's the head of the tribal council security for the facility, the actual facility. So that morning, uh, by eight o'clock, eight thirty, I was meeting with the uh, tribal council president, but more importantly, I was meeting with the, with the public relations officer of the um, tribal council, the Hickory Apache nation. And uh, what I had learned that morning was just shocking. I had found out that on the pre previous Friday, on the on the 21st, uh, a Governor Ventura and his television crew were denied access to Dulce. They were they were actually told that they would not be allowed to film there, and they were asked to uh, do any filming off of the reservation. Um, now I don't understand why that happened, and I and I was kind of dismayed because. Uh, Governor Ventura has a fantastic show, and I know that he would have brought a lot of attention to Dulce with respects to the underground facility in a positive light, you know, trying to put a positive spin on it, not so much a negative. But for whatever reason, he was denied. I had presented my book to uh, Mr. Rival, who's the uh, public relations officer, and uh, surprisingly, he had already read my book, I think this is a PDF file, and he had been to the website. He granted us access to film on the reservation, in particular the Mesa. We went up to the Mesa, the Archuleta Mesa, where we had high-definition camera equipment, and we went up there, and, you know, we made a discovery. But uh, Governor Ventura's group was given uh, a gentleman who's a Bigfoot expert, and I, I don't know how that happened. I don't know what happened, but uh, thankfully we were allowed to go up. We were given unprecedented access, and we, we came away with some amazing information. And, and incidentally, the woman who uh, uh, facilitated my arrival and was actually the host family for me, we got to stay at their house um, while we were there. Uh, she she was the uh, person who facilitated all of the, uh, the uh, arrival for Governor Ventura. They actually fed them lunch and they had a good time and everything, but 
for some reason, they just were not allowed to film. What, why were you allowed and why was uh, Governor Ventura denied access to the reservation? You know, I think it's because if, if you understand who the Hickory Apache are, you understand that they're a very, very guarded, closely guarded community. They're a very, very tight-knit group. You know, they have a lot of uh, families who are interwoven with throughout the structure of the council, the tribal council, and everybody knows everybody. And they really don't want to bring negative attention to Dulce, um, let alone the, uh, the, the, the entire reservation. Mm-hmm. I am a little bit different in the sense that before I ever approached anybody from the Hickory Apache Nation, I made it a point to understand who the Hickory Apache were. I read all 52 of the sacred texts uh, from their culture. Um, I reached out by talking with people, not talking at people. I didn't come in with this attitude that I was this wonderful researcher with this, you know, big attitude and this ego. Right. Oh, so I was very, very humble. I brought gifts to the people that I met. And uh, I think that's that went a long way with me because I ended up becoming close friends with quite a few families there. And uh, to this day, I, I'm on a daily basis uh, texting and chatting and uh, t- having phone conversations. And I'm going to honor those friendships for the rest of my life. There's a, there's a saying treat people the way, the way you want to be treated. But that's, in my opinion, wrong. You have to treat people the way they want to be treated. And that's what you did by learning their ways before you went to step number two. That's right. That's right. So um, they knew who I was. They knew what I was about. So they gave us access. The one thing they did not want us to do, which was in similar fashion to Governor Ventura, was they did not want us to interview anybody on the reservation. If we were to conduct interviews, it would have to be off the reservation. So uh, we're talking like Chama, Lumberton, and in particular for us, we ended up meeting with almost everybody in Taos. Now, the question is, do you think that the elders and the reservation per se is aware of what's happening there? And they I don't want to use the word collusion because that's not what, what I'm trying to say. But do you think that they have an agreement in which they know and they have kept this information quiet, perhaps to to guarantee their own safety? You know, I'm going to agree with you in the sense that this is not collusion. But what I will say is it's probably an innocent level of compliance right? Uh, for their safety. They don't want to bring harm to their own people. Uh, and when I say harm, I mean in the sense of confrontations with uh, military personnel and also with respect to exposure to any type of uh, toxic substances coming from the facility. You know, one of the things that I walk away with as an investigator, and I have to be really, really frank about this, the, the, the Hickory Apache Nation is in a very, very isolated area of northern New Mexico. It is far from everything. When we went to dinner one evening, we were 30, some, some 30, some 38, 32, 38 miles away from Trauma, which is where we ended up having dinner. At this one location, and to them, that's just like driving around the corner. But you know, from somebody like myself coming from a very urban community, 38 miles, it's like driving to another city. Yeah, open spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dulce is in a very isolated part of northern New Mexico. It is very, very isolated. There's not very many close by, you know, uh, communities. You know, you have to the west, you have you have a uh, uh, Farmington. Uh, to the east, you have uh, Lumberton, and to the south uh, east, you have uh, Chama. And these are very, very you know spread out communities. So with the Hickory Apache Nation being isolated in such a remote area of northern New Mexico, 
there's not that much traffic going through the township, let alone the reservation. Now, I confirmed this with many of the people that I spoke to. From, from the perspective of a researcher and an investigator, one of the things that I noticed was that I'm told that much of the community's revenue derives from the profits that are made at the casino, the Wild Horse Casino. This is what I'm told. And, and, and I cannot confirm that 100%, but the reason why I bring that up is this. When we were in Dulce, the, the casino was nearly empty at all times that we were there. In fact, when I spoke to some of the people that live there in Dulce, they told me that there's almost nobody ever at the casino. I've, I've heard that before. Even Norio shared that with me. It's, it, it may be a facade. Yeah, so we, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Rick Prestel of the Sacramento MUFON, who was uh, my high-def cameraman who was on the trip with me, when he and I went to the casino together, we literally had to knock on the door and ask permission to go inside. And once we were inside, there was nobody there except employees. Hmm. So it makes to it makes you know it makes you wonder where is the money coming for the, the level of sophistication that goes into the design of the buildings in Dulce. Now, many of the homes are you know they're just like standard homes. They're nothing fancy. You know, it's like anything we would live in, but. The, the tribal council facilities, the schools, everything, uh, it's just very, very ornate, very beautiful in design. I mean, one of the things that I noticed was that it almost had a museum quality, uh, you know, uh, level of appreciation when I went into the tribal council facilities. It was absolutely gorgeous. But at the same time, I noticed that it was very, very ornate, very, very, you know, well, well built, well constructed uh, facility. Uh, but and obviously, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars had to go into the design of the facility, of the tribal council facility, but I, I would not be able to speculate on whether or not that money alone is coming through the uh, the casino because, like I said, the casino is practically empty. Well, that's why I say, that, as you said, it's friendly compliance. I call it maybe scratch your back, you scratch my back, I'll keep quiet, you keep doing what you're doing, and you leave us alone. Absolutely. So what happened then in your last adventure there that I believe that you may have touched something that could have created a health hazard to you? So by 1030 uh, that morning on the 24th, we were up on the Archuleta Mesa. We had a guide who took us uh, up to the area that I wanted to investigate. I had satellite photography of the Mesa, and there were various spots of interest that I just absolutely had to investigate. One of them was an area that I called Shadow Ridge that if you read the book Yofo Highway and you listen to the description, if you if you follow the description given by the colonel as to where the entrance to the facility is, you know, you're looking for something in the southwest area of the Archuleta Mesa. And you're also looking for a face of columnar basalt. Well, I found two of them. Uh, there's the larger one and there's a smaller one. And I was really interested in the smaller one because – there are these unnatural mounds of gravel in front of this uh, columnar basalt, this wall. And at first I thought, okay, I could identify where the gravel was coming from. But when I actually went to the facility, I mean, to the to the uh, rock face, and I looked at it up close, there were normal levels of striation in the rock that were occurring that just absolutely, you know, out, outright, you know, denied the, the uh, thought that uh, – or excuse me, discounted the, the thought that these mounds of gravel would be coming from 
from the uh, the rock face. Now we we were only allowed to go about you know within seventy yards of it. We were not allowed to go up close to it. It was one of the things that they wanted us to respect uh, because you don't want to damage you know the uh, the the ecosystem, the environment. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't want people walking all over these areas, many of them which they consider sacred. Right. So. But I noticed, you know, Mel, and I have not shared this with anybody, but there was just something very, very unnatural about this area called Shadow Ridge. And I'm going to put that on my ufohighway.com website. There's a photo of it already there, but I'm going to put detailed information about it there when I can. So that was one area I wanted to discover. Uh, That was um, before we had reached the 1996 UFO crash site. There was a crash site there. That I also wanted to look at. I wanted now I had a Geiger counter and some other you know pieces of equipment, uh, and I wanted to conduct some experiments. But again, you know, a lot of these areas are what they consider sacred, and they don't even hunt on a lot of these areas. And unfortunately, the uh, crash site area is one of these areas. So we were not allowed to take our equipment up there, but we were allowed to photograph as much as we wanted, and we got really close. I mean, talk, we're talking within 30, 40 yards of the actual crash site. And um, after that, we went up to a one spot in particular that I that I was drawn to at the top of the at the very very top of the mesa. This is at the plateau. We're talking less than sixteen hundred feet away from the radio towers. And we had uh, driven up there with our guide, and I noticed that our guide was becoming a little bit pensive. You know, the, the closer we got to this area, because I think. There's, there's stuff going on up there, and he's aware of it to some extent, and I'll explain that in a minute. But we were turning a corner up there, you know, coming through this one small little micro valley, and we had hit this this area that's uh, kind of like a cow pasture. And out of my peripheral vision, I saw two very strange objects, very large objects. These were F-5 jet engine shipping containers, U.S., military grade these were steel shipping containers and it literally said on the property of the u.s government one was under a tree and the other one was near a water source about 30 to 40 feet away and the strangest thing about these was that they're in the middle of nowhere my guide could not tell me how they got there he said he does not even remember seeing them from like a year earlier he says they were not there Um, there was a small level of rust on them but I don't think that these shipping containers were brought there for any other reason other than to cover up what I think were ventilation shafts, air shafts. Mm-hmm. The one under the tree, we could not budget. Uh, there was a strange sound emitting from it. But it was an empty container. So that led me to believe, well, where is that sound coming from? It was oh, like, you looked inside? Yeah, we were able to look directly inside the container. There was nothing in it. It was just a massive hunk of steel. So Rick Pristel was over at the other container and he drew my attention to it. He says, Anthony, you got to come see this. I said, what is it? So underneath that container, there were slats of wood. They were mm. not quite two by fours, but pretty close. And there was air coming up from these slats of wood. Did you hear a whistling sound? It was kind of like a whooshy, like a wood, like a whoosh. Yep. You know, there you go. And we were like, is that? And then we're like, okay. If this thing is elevated, you know, like about an inch or a half inch off the ground, is that just the air, residual air from the wind that was up there at the time? And there was no wind up there. That was what we, so there was no wind up. There really was no wind. So we 
deduced that it had to have been coming from underneath it through some type of a ventilation shaft. Now, when we tried to move this thing, this thing was well over 500 pounds. Oh, you tried to move it too? Yeah, we tried to move. No, he didn't try to move it. I tried to move it. Okay. And um, that's why at first I thought that my illness that I had come down to, down with, was uh, attributed to uh, touching those containers. But I later learned that it had nothing to do with that, that there was nothing on the containers itself that could have made me sick. We, we, we've identified something else that led to that conclusion. Did I see some antennas or, or some kind of a electronic device adjacent to those boxes? You know, we were looking for uh, wires. We were looking for antenna. We were looking for just about anything that was out of the ordinary. And we did find something about, I want to say, less than 100 yards away from the containers, adjacent to the containers, perched up on a hill, was a guard shack. Now, at first, I said to my guide, I said, are you familiar with that? He goes, you know, that thing just showed up here about a year, maybe between one and two years ago. It just showed up out of nowhere. And then, mysteriously, these containers showed up. You know, based on what I was, you know, the information that I was getting from him, the the shack showed up first, and then just a short time afterwards, those containers showed up. So here's what's strange. I asked the guide about the, 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 the shack up there. I said, is that a hunting lodge? He goes, nope. He goes, if it was a hunting lodge, he goes, first of all, that's on Hickoria land. It's not on Ute land, and it's not on BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. Right. So if that's one of our lodges, it's not going to look, you know, dilapidated like that. He goes, because of its age, only less than, what, less than a year and a half, maybe two years max. It should be in pristine condition. And he showed me examples of other lodges that they had built like five, six years er earlier. They were beautiful. They were gorgeous because it's a lot of those guys there in the Hickory Apache Nation, like my guy, who is a seven-year police officer veteran, they make their living now as hunting guides. They go up there, so they, they make sure that the facilities up there, the hunting lodges, are in pristine condition so that they're usable for their guests, their paying guests. So this place had nothing inside it, you know, other than – what we could detect was a table and a chair. Why would they have like a desk and a chair and a hunting lodge? That's why we made the assumption that it's a guard shack. And something was going on in that little small valley where this cow pasture is, where these containers are. Something was going on. When I talked to Norio Hayakawa, and we discussed the Redding Ranch, uh, which is also up in that area, more towards the Colorado side, the Redding Ranch, there's some strange things going on up there, Mel. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but at the Redding Ranch, there seems to be a massive landing area for some type of massive circumference, uh, you know, circular-shaped craft. And I'm not making this up. Uh, one of the gentlemen who was giving a presentation there in Taos showed detailed photographs of the Redding Ranch. And here's what's strange about this landing area. It is surrounded by a dozen or more steel, I want to call them guard shacks, with bulletproof windows. And we're talking about levels of steel that could withstand heat. And when you look at some of these, you can tell that some of them have been subjected to high levels of heat on one side only, the side that points towards the inner area of the circle, which I consider to be a landing area. Now, this is some strange stuff that's going on up there in Dulcie. And these craft, are they ours or are they the greys? My understanding is that these craft, there's two types. There's the one that's a 100% gray craft, 
and the other one, which is a new new type of experimental aircraft that's developed by the the interest there in Dulce, the military interest and the research and design interest that is utilizing some level of alien technology, obviously Grace. And I have to tell you folks, when we did our your first interview last year, I had not read the book as it wasn't out yet. I had the opportunity to read the book now, and I must tell you, it's one of the most fascinating books I have ever read on the subject. And the interview with the colonel is just absolutely incredible. So I want to revisit this because of everything you're saying now. Tell us about what happened to you physically after you, you returned. Yeah, on our way up there, you know, I was fine. There was nothing wrong with me. Um, but I guess it was because of the elevation. Initially, I started to feel something going on in the left side of my head. Uh, but nothing, you know, like your ears popping. You know, when you go to high elevation, your ears will pop. So I didn't think anything of it. But that morning, after we had conducted our investigation, we had gone back down to the host family's house right there by Dulcie Rock, uh, uh, where they live. And we were, you know, going over our data. We were conducting research. And uh, I started to get this disorientation, this feeling of disorientation. And I started to, to feel levels of pain to begin in my head. My entire head felt like it was being in a vice. And, and then, I mean, this is all within 30 minutes, all of this happened, and the, from the disorientation to the vice-like pain, and then ultimately it culminated to the point where I literally felt my head was melting on the inside. At that point, I let my host family know that there was just absolutely no way I was going to be able to stay with them that evening, so I was going to have to get a room again at the uh, Best Western because I just wanted to be, you know, alone because the pain was just unbearable. Now, that evening, we had planned to go to dinner at a restaurant in Chama, which is uh, 32 or 38 miles away. I don't recall at the moment, but I know it's 30 miles plus away from Dulce. When we got to Chama, um, I had ordered food, and uh, I had to return the food because there's just I just could not move my head. Moving my head was painful. It sounds strange, Mel, but just the just moving my head from my left shoulder to the top of my head was extremely painful. Um, and then I ordered so I ordered drinks, and uh, you know there was a a gentleman there who had served me drinks, and uh, and. I just, you know, I had to call it a night. We had to drive back to Dulcie. It was just too much. We actually packed up our food and we had to drive back to Dulcie. I went immediately uh, to the hotel and everybody went back to the guest house, uh, to our host family's home house. And uh, that night I was just in unbearable pain. I was I was so close to calling 911 to just get me to a hospital or something. But I dealt with it. The following morning I went, I woke up. The pain seemed to have subsided. But I was very disoriented, so I, I stumbled into the restaurant at the Best Western, and uh, I noticed that you know there was uh, several other people there, business people, and some uh, you know other people having breakfast. And uh, I sat down to have breakfast. I ordered you know just a standard breakfast and the coffee and orange juice. And uh, the one thing that I did notice was that that morning there was uh, there was uh, two women that I had recognized. But when we first got there and who were working there that morning, there was an older woman, had to have been like in her 70s, and a very, very young woman, uh, attractive young woman in about, I would imagine her mid-20s or early 20s. 
they were serving everybody. But when my food came out, there was a strange-looking woman who just did not fit the mold. She was not American Indian. She was not Spanish. And she was just very, very I – mean, one, she, she had to have been at least 40 years old, very attractive. But she just did not seem right. She just did not fit the mold of living in Dulce or working in Dulce. There was something strange about her. She served me my food. Then I did not see her again. After that meal, I became terribly ill. I mean, so much so that we had to leave Dulce. We ended up at Taos, and I could not drive my own car to Taos. It was just that bad. The pain had, had you know, resurfaced. But this time, the disorientation was on a whole other level, and my head was hurting to the touch. It was hurting to the touch. So everybody was concerned for me. Um, I had explained to them what had happened at the restaurant, and they assured me that there is no middle-aged woman who works at the restaurant. Hmm. They said that there – as a matter of fact, they knew the two women, the older woman in her 70s and the young girl. They knew them by name. you got to remember, it's a close-knit community in Dulcie, so everybody knows everybody. So why would they allow a stranger to all of a sudden become a server temporarily there that day? You know, I have since talked to somebody from Australian intelligence who is familiar with Dulcie uh, because of his uh, close relationship with the Pine Gap facility. And he told me, now get this, Mel, he told me that that woman who worked there is a manufactured product. She's not even human. Mm. And that she she is part of the system that can easily infiltrate any type of setting and, you know, uh, subject someone to some type of like a neurotoxin or whatever. So since since that event, I've been seen by specialists in both New Mexico and California. And the one thing that they have identified is that the paralysis from my left shoulder to the top of my head, which covers my whole face, my left side of my face, excuse me, they initially thought it was something called Bell's palsy. Then they ruled that out. Then... That conducted me to a battery, you know, I was subjected to a battery of blood tests. And what they found was is that I had been subjected to some type of a neurotoxin. They were not able to identify it because they said, had it been something commercial, had it been something, uh, you know, uh, like a uh, like a commercial grade pesticide, they could identify its chemical signature. Yeah, the trace, yeah. Yes, and they were not able to, and they are still not able to. Well, this person that I spoke to from this intelligence a uh, group in Australia told me that based on their, they have, I guess with their group, you know, something like a decision tree software, which helps them immediately analyze symptoms and come up with what it is that I could be subjected to or anybody for that matter. They think that I was subjected to a nanofraction of the pufferfish uh, venom mm. uh, mixed with the Carrera plant, which is a with South American uh, toxic, toxic, toxic plants. And if anybody knows what pufferfish is, you have to eat it at a restaurant that's qualified to be able to serve it. Otherwise, you can die of poisoning. Yes, and this individual says that based on my symptoms, it is clear that I have been subjected to a cocktail mixture of the pufferfish venom and or poison and the uh, Carrera plant, which is a highly toxic plant used to stop the heart in in. Uh, in uh, surgeries, they, they actually utilize it in the medical field. And uh, he says it's a nano fraction that I've been cocktail that I've been administered to. And he believes that that woman there is not a she's not a she's not a hickory, hickory Apache. She's not a person of Spanish origin. Uh, she's uh, 
you know, the description that I gave to her was that she was at least 40 years old, super, super attractive, uh, qu- quite tall, actually, quite tall. Olive, she had an olive skin tone. I don't want to get her, into the minutia, but did you keep your receipt, which usually shows the name of the person? You know, I do have the receipt, and there's no name on huh. it. There's no server on my receipt. Interesting. Yeah, that was one of the things that Rick and everybody there had said. Well, who was it? What was her name? And there was nothing on it. Interesting. Only signature on there was my signature, and I left a tip. Well, let's go back for a second. This is, I think, 2010 when you were also visited by Air Force OSI. Is that true? That's right. It's actually 2011. This oh, summer. 11. Okay. Yeah, this is recently. This past summer, I was contacted by my source named Trinity. Trinity is the person who got me in touch with the colonel. This is some time ago. Trinity and I had been working together on trying to expose this company called Hyperion, who we believe is uh, working under the umbrella of the technology commercialization offices out of LANL. What they do is they are building uh, micronuclear reactors. Uh, and uh, I don't want to go into that too much at this point, but Trinity had given me information with regards to this project Leonid that you and I have talked about earlier. There was a, a, a craft that he had wanted me to witness. He said this craft was going to be flown out of Edwards Air Force Base and it was going to be going into low Earth orbit and it would land at Bill Air Force Base. Now, mind you, I did not go on to Bill Air Force Base property. I was well over a mile away from any official government property. I was on, you know, residential property, city-owned property. I witnessed a craft land there on the uh, 1st of June, and then again on the 18th of June. And after each after each uh, incident, I was visited by AFOSI from Bill. This is Detachment 218. Now, I was threatened, and I was harassed, and it didn't go well for me because ultimately my home was broken into, and they stole a half-terabyte hard drive of research data of mine. Since the, the theft of the hard drive, everybody that I had been working with whose information was on the hard drive, and, my, and keep in mind it was encrypted, so they had, must have had some powerful you know, decryption algorithms going on or something, but this was encrypted information. I have had people being harassed. Everybody that has helped me on this project has now been subjected to some level of harassment. So... Yes, I have been visited by Bill Air Force Base, uh, AFOSI, and uh, I don't take it lightly because uh, they're a very, very intimidating group. When you say that you were threatened, what did they say? Well, first of all, what I found strange was I was off of Bill Air Force property, and at the time, my car did not have any plates on it. There were no plates on my car. We had two-way radios, but they were not turned on. We had cell phones, but they were not turned on. Somebody told me that my cell phone probably could still be turned on, even though I think it is turned off. Uh, And I still have to verify that. But this is 25 miles away from where I physically live. We don't know how they tracked us down, tracked me down in particular. They came directly to my house where I live, in the city that I live in, which is 25 miles away from Marysville. How did they know that it was me, Mel? Um, On the first visit, they wanted to know what I was doing out there. Why was I taking photographs? Somehow they knew I was taking photographs. 
They wanted my SanDisk uh, drive. They wanted my USB drive. They wanted physical hard drives, any type of media that could retain imagery from that evening. I didn't give them anything. I told them they didn't have a right to, to that information that I wasn't. Uh, so I essentially put up an argument. I, I put up a, a resistance. On the 18th, I went back out there. I did the same exact thing. This time they came around, they were not nice. Uh, they were a very intimidating force on their second visit. And, uh, you know, ultimately it led into somebody coming into my house, whether or not I liked it, because now I'm missing all the images from those two visits, all the SanDisk, all the HD, uh, every media, every media capable of, they even took my cell phone, by the way. Did they, did they come me. in covertly? Yes. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about it too much because I don't want to upset my children, but, you know, my dog, I have an 80-pound Labrador retriever. He's a, he's a beautiful animal. Excuse me, he's a yellow lab. He's a beautiful animal. And uh, my friends know my dog. You know, Rick and all those guys from MUFON, they know my dog. There's no way in hell somebody could have come into my place uh, without, confronting, without being confronted by my dog, uh, who was here at that time. Um, I'm telling you, Mel, they drugged my dog because when we came back, my dog was unresponsive and it's as if he was sleeping in his little house that I have here in the living room for him and he would not come out of it. Remember, he just was unresponsive and that is not like my dog at all. So I know that they they ended up doing something to my dog. I actually took my dog to a vet uh, here in the area and they confirmed to me that my dog had been like given something, you know, like some type of like a tranquilizer or something to make him, you know, really docile or, you know, not fall asleep. Yeah. So I, I, I have been subjected to, you know, levels of intimidation now by AFOSI. And, uh, I'm, I'm concerned that it's probably going to increase now that I have this new information that's coming out. Okay. There are two names that, uh, and I want to go and touch a little bit of, of the interview that you did with uh, Colonel X. Uh, two names that, that come to mind, of course, uh, one being Paul Benowitz and the other one being Phil Snyder. During the, the past few months, I sent you some letters that had written by, by Paul Benowitz in which he was interacting with, with somebody else. Yes. Uh, in case people don't know, Paul Benowitz was a genius. He had his, his company in New Mexico, and I think he was getting too close to the truth. And his latter months, latter years, he became so paranoid that died in a mental hospital. Do you want to tell a little bit more about Paul Benowitz, of the things that the colonel told you about him? Yeah, Paul Benowitz did indeed stumble on the truth, and he was utilizing his own skills as an engineer and someone of a scientist to create uh, equipment that ultimately led him to the triangulation of signals that were coming from uh, Kirkland Air Force Base, the, the Archuleta Mesa, and the Mansano, uh, the Mansano nuclear storage facility right there in Coyote Canyon, he was triangulating signals that were that were not normal. They were not human signals. These were signals that he believed to be from an extraterrestrial intelligence, and he was absolutely correct. And what what occurred was, is that because he was a patriot and a citizen, he told this to Kirtland Air Force Base, he, to the AFOSI group there, who was also at the same time conducting, you know, their own experiments and whatnot on other, you know, classified projects. I don't know if it was because of those projects or because it was coupled with the fact that he had made this discovery of these signals that were being triangulated 
through his equipment, that they essentially placed Bill Moore as a disinformation agent within his mist. And since then, uh, you know, from, from that point on, Bill Moore had been feeding nothing but pure disinformation to Paul Benowitz, you know, making the guy more paranoid and ultimately, you know, leading to the point where, you know, he was institutionalized. Um, it's a very, very sad story. You know, Bill Moore came out and publicly acknowledged what he had done. Many people didn't believe him at the time, but, you know, I have read, you know, several books on the matter, and I have actually conducted my own personal investigation with the help of Norio Invested, with Norio you know, Hayakawa, and I believe wholeheartedly that the paranoia levels were, you know, augmented by the disinformation that was being fed to him through Bill Moore and AFOSI. They, they, they did not want him conducting any, any further investigation into Delphi. What did he find that was so, so important? It was it was signals that were being sent to Kirtland Air Force Base and some location in Coyote Canyon, uh, which is right there, part of the Monsanto Nuclear uh, Storage Facility, right adjacent to Kirtland. And in those signals, I don't, I'm not sure what the signals were, you know, talking about specifically, but he was able to decipher them enough to the enough, you know, that he brought it, he brought it to the attention. Uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, AFOSI. So they sent uh, this information agent to somewhat pacify him and lead him to other things that uh, made him become paranoid. But just going back to the book once again, the interview was so fascinating. And what the colonel was telling you, this Dulce underground facility, some people, the Murak uh, expedition, they were looking for underground places to put some of our atomic or nuclear equipment, and they stumbled upon this. Take it from there. Yeah, so in 1938, the Murak expedition out of Murak Army Airfield, which is now Edwards Air Force Base, was commissioned to assist in the location of a future home for our atomic development program. Now, a lot of people contest the dates, but if you read the book and you look at the history, you know, the provenance of this information is 100% Factual. It happened at the time that we knew that the Nazis were already conducting high levels of uh, investment and research into their own nuclear program. So this led to the Einstein-Szilard letter, which prompted the executive office here in the United States to move forward with our own development of nuclear, you know, weaponization. So this group. One of many, by the way, one of many that were scouting areas throughout Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Southern California, even Utah. This one group in particular made probably the most monumental discovery in the history of ufology. I say ufology because it relates to the fact that we know that there are UFO craft there and that there is a species there that operate these craft. Uh, some people go beyond that, but... They found an entrance, which I believe is Shadow Ridge, this one spot that I told you about that I identified using satellite photography. They identified an entrance which led them to an underground facility. Now, the t at the time, the facility, the entrance that they had found, there was no, it was not being hidden by any type of sophisticated equipment. It was wide open. In the facility, upon entering, they found... Uh, they found signs of a, some type of a, a, a violent engagement that had taken place between Apache warriors and these small diminutive beings. 
strewn throughout the location was weapons. There were dead bodies everywhere. You know, obviously they had succumbed to, uh, you know, uh, they had succumbed to time, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, the, the decomposition of the bodies showed, uh, you know, how old they were, not to mention the fact that they had uh, traditional Apache warrior uh, garb on. They pinpointed to, to what, the 1870s because they found some pistols? Yeah, they were able to. They were able to deduce through the uh, the, the serial numbers of the pistols, the ages of uh, the, the models of the pistols, and uh, uh, there's um, repeater rifles. Uh, these were repeater rifles, Winchester repeater rifles. That they were definitely. They had to have been around the 1870s that this engagement had taken place. What was strange was that in addition to the human bodies, they found small diminutive beings. These were greys. They didn't know that they were greys. They didn't know what they were. In fact, some of the descriptions provided by the soldiers you know, were rather crude, but they were thinking that they were just some people that were very small or something. They were, you know, were disfigured possibly because of the size of their heads and the, the eye sockets. Now, what bugs me the most, Mel, and I've never been able to get confirmation of this, is why, why would there be this evidence of a battle there left untouched? Why would the other people who engaged, you know, back in the 1870s, you know, I'm not talking about the, the American Indians, but I'm talking about the Greys, leave that there, you know, leave that, that whole scene there, you know, of dead. Why didn't they clean it? Yes. Well, I spoke with a Hickory Apache elder who told me that they know about that event. They know about that event. And what they said was, is that the little devils, as they refer to them, these little devils. Diablitos. Those diablitos. They left these, this scene in place as a warning to not go further into the, you know, the, the caverns. And it had been that way since the 1870s up until 1938. And they confirmed to me that there had been many encounters with these creatures throughout the wilderness there up in Dulcie. But they knew that that one cavern in particular, which I call Shadow Ridge, was an area to stay away from. And I think that that's, you know, that's what rugged me for so long. Was why did they leave that there? And now I know I have received confirmation that it was a warning. It was set up as... Do not approach this area. That's why the bodies were left there of both types. Of course, you see it there, and you want to just do your retreat, and you you go back. So the the Murak expedition, they they did they continue? Did they push forward? Well, this is a heavily armed group, you know, of uh, you know, highly sophisticated soldiers. This is an elite group of soldiers. What you you know you would consider a special operations yeah. group. They they stayed. They realized what they had discovered. They found rooms filled with technology. They found these. What we now refer to as the gray archaeological tablets. These are tablets that documented uh, the entire existence and history of the grays since their creation here on Earth. One of the things that people have to understand about the grays, they're dulcy. They are not aliens, per se. They are a cybernetic organism, a, 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 a group of, of creatures that were created by another species of higher intelligence here on Earth that were from somewhere else. But they're biological. Yes, they are biological. And the biological materials that were used to create these greys was of extraterrestrial origin, but technically they're not alien because they were created here on Earth. Now, we know about this because these grey archaeological tablets speak in depth 
of their history, why they are here, who created them, how long they have been here, and why they were placed there in Dulce some 25,000 years ago. Are there similarities between the tablets and perhaps some of our ancient language like Sumerian or Babylonian? Akkadian. 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 Okay. Yes, absolutely. Akkadian cuneiform. And the reason why, that is the reason why we were able to translate these. There was an initial level of translation that had taken place. They brought in experts from around the world. But it wasn't until much later that they brought in an expert from Iraq, the Dr. Uh, uh, Tahan Bakir, who was an Iraqi archaeologist. He was the, the world's foremost expert in cuneiform, and specifically Akkadian cuneiform. So one of the works that he's most uh, remembered for is he did the initial translation of the Canadian uh, from Akkadian to Arabic translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this is this is a very, very highly sought after person. Well, the U.S. government brought him in and they worked him until his death in the mid 80s, essentially, to translate literally everything that they had found there in Dulce. Today, those archaeological tablets are being housed at a vault in uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Ohio. Now, since the publication of UFO Highway, I have received contact, in addition to being contacted uh, with, along with uh, the Project Camelot people. This is Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy. At the same time that they were contacted, I was contacted by a gentleman who worked at an aerospace facility in Southern California who says he was coming to us by way of the colonel. He had owed a favor to the colonel, and the information that he provided was just stunning. It was just shocking. He claims to have worked, to still work to this day, at an aerospace firm. He gave us the name, the location, the office building, the floor. His, I mean, we have so much information on this person. I even have his FAA license and his home address. He is very, very real, this man. I can tell you, Mel, that his father was been confirmed to be an ex-operative of the CIA. So that is the connection to the colonel. His father and the colonel were close friends. This gentleman told me that he had worked at this aerospace firm as a volunteer. And I, I put those in quotes because that's how they refer to these individuals who work cataloging and archiving all the information, all the official information but classified information between the U.S. government, other world governments, and extraterrestrials, grades from dulces, and encounters with UFOs. We're talking about video, audio, you know, signed documentation, everything that you can imagine. Volunteers? Yes. Don't they make about $2,000 an hour? These guys are paid $2,000 as part of a federal subcontract to the General Services Administration. Now, get this. The facility is owned by the aerospace firm, but the space within the facility is not. It is leased out and, and technically owned by the federal government. What branch of the government? I don't know. But I know that there's a connection to the Department of Defense and the U.S. Air Force. Interesting, because that, that makes it immediately off limits from FOIA, from Freedom of Information Act, because it's in the hands of a private contractor. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the building, the images that you shared with me last year, I believe. And is there any correlation between this individual and Mr. X, the, the man who, who died a few years ago after their interview with Project Camelot? 
there's a direct correlation because Mr. X worked at another aerospace firm there in Southern California. There are two redundant facilities in Southern California that essentially house the same exact data uh, that the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base vault has. So the connection is this. This individual who contacted us told us that Mr. X worked under the same exact program as a volunteer for the archiving of these these uh, documents and videos and audio, uh, you know, uh, tapes and whatnot. That's the connection. And we have uh, so much more to talk about, but we have to take a one and only intermission. But before we do so, uh, I want to let you know that this book is almost 400 pages, folks, and it's full of information. And I'm going to try to extract little pieces here because we would need days just to continue analyzing it all. But one thing before we go into break, uh, Anthony, we have certain levels on this Dulce facility. By the way, many people call it Dulce, some call it Dulce. What's the proper pronunciation? This, the, the, the Spanish pronunciation is Dulce, which means sweet. Yes. But, but I think the Americanization and the, the more you know familiar term around the world is dulce. dulce. Most people refer to it as dulce. Okay. Well, there are different levels here. And at one point, there was the, can we call them dissident grays, more of yes. a younger crowd, about 600 years old, average. And they dissented from the other grays, and they created their own level. And we had to put them in, can we say, quarantined, but we trusted them and they were kept in this first level. And then there were other levels beneath it. And the ones at the bottom were the really negative or evil grace, if you want to call them that way. And I want to explore this with you because this is, in the 1940s, there was a, a battle, if you will. There was another one in 1979. What well, we heard from Phil Schneider, some information that he presented perhaps was embellished, but some information was corroborated by the colonel, including yes. the, the security clearance that he had, which was a, Correct me if I'm wrong pronouncing this, Rhyolite? Rhyolite clearance. This is so interesting, folks, and I want you to please help Anthony. He has put a lot of years into this book, and the book is UFO Highway. You can buy it at ufohighway.com. Is there any other website, anything you'd like to tell the audience before we take a break? You know, I'd like to announce to the audience that um, an addendum, I would call it an addendum to UFO Highway, is projectleonid.com. And they can find that information at ufohighway.com. Project Leonid is going to be coming out soon. And it is uh, a, a more information on underground facilities. But this one is in China. And it's very, very interesting. On segment two, I will discuss Project Leonid with them. And as you know, we discuss a lot of geopolitical events here, including China. Recently, we saw some satellite imagery showing massive areas in China that look almost as a military or perhaps underground bases. But this on the way back. I'm here with Anthony Sanchez. I'm Al Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
this is John Lear, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 